Good morning. If you would stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures, we will be reading from John chapter 16, verses 4 to 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he takes what is mine and declares it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I think I forgot to introduce myself earlier. My apologies, that's a little bit rude. My name's Cameron. I am one of the pastors here. Um, it is a joy to be with you. I, there's just something about your voices, like co-mingled, singing these songs. It's, it's, be that my vision, these extremely old songs. I was, uh, I was just really moved. Thank you for, thank you for worshiping with us. Um, that fortifies my faith, it really does. Um, well, we're going to take a break from the Gospel according to Mark, as we, as we do from time to time. We've been in the Gospel according to Mark uh, as a community for over a year and a half. Uh, we've been taking breaks periodically. I think I mentioned this a few months ago, but we've, we've got it worked out so that we are going to finish Mark next Easter. Um, so we will be finishing it then. Nothing to add to that. That's when we finish it. Um, we're taking a break right now, though. We'll be back in it again in a few months. But for the summer, for the remainder of the summer, we wanted to take a minute to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Um, question. When I say that, we're going to take some time to talk about the Holy Spirit. How do you feel? What, Vivian likes it. Tammy likes it. Anybody else like it? No. <laughs> a few, few of you. Hey, here's a, real, here's a legitimate question. Anybody, I, I want to know, no judgment here. Is anyone kind of like uncomfortable? You're like, not my favorite, not my favorite thing. No one will admit to it, I see. Um, that's okay. No, there's lots of different reactions. Um, I, I, some people are just chomping at the bit, and I think that's a good and beautiful and right reaction. But other people, just to, when you think about the Holy Spirit, the first thing that kind of happens for you is confusion. Confusion. Because as you know, that like who is the Holy, not so much who is the Holy Spirit, but like what does the Holy Spirit do? What is he up to in the life of the church or in the life of the individual Christian? As, if you're a believer, you may be going like, what am I even supposed to expect of him? Because 
this is obviously something that divides different theological traditions, church traditions. People have very heated, passionate views about what the Holy Spirit is or isn't up to, what his work in someone's life does or doesn't look like. Um, so some of you are just like, I don't, I don't know. This is just, it, just conf- it just breeds confusion to even start talking about this. Um, some of you, some of you may even have a reaction of, that's more like fear. Uh, because and I'm assuming if that's you, it's because you've maybe been a part of a church community where the Holy Spirit was kind of weaponized or there were kind of um, strange, maybe in your opinion, non-biblical expressions or expectations put on people and it just became kind of a, a, a disturbing and uncomfortable thing for you potentially. Maybe for some of us, and this is the case for me, this has been the case for me throughout a lot of my adult Christian life, is that when I start thinking about the Holy Spirit, what gets triggered, what gets triggered in me is dis- a sense of disappointment with myself. And what I mean by that is the feeling of like, it seems like there's more, there should be more than what I'm experiencing. Now, I talk to person A, B, and C, and it feels like the Holy Spirit is up to all these wonderful and intriguing and amazing things. And then with me, I don't feel like I'm getting any of that. And my, my, speaking for myself, my reaction then is to assume and to feel that there's some deficiency within me, some lack of seriousness about my discipleship to Jesus, some missing bit of theology or some key that I've yet to turn that's going to unlock something or whatever. Whatever it is, disappointment. Disappointment. Maybe that's some of you too. Um, I think the truth is, it, in a lot of churches... Um, the, it's very easy for the Holy Spirit to be either functionally ignored or oddly distorted. Um, to our shame, to our shame, we ignore him when we think that we don't need him. And this ties into what we were talking about last week and just our desperation for God, for Jesus. That extends to the Holy Spirit as well, of course. We think we can get along just fine without a vital, abiding connection to the Spirit of God. Even myself, as a, as a leader in the church, I think I have the tools, I have the skills, you know, I have the education or whatever to do whatever it is that God needs us to do in this church stuff. I don't need a vital connection to Him. What's the whole, you know, it, it turns into what, what do I even need Him for? I confess. Um, or, or, Sometimes we feel that we, we need and have a version of him, of the Holy Spirit, that was never even promised to us in the scriptures. We, we invent these versions of what he must do that, that isn't even at all the picture that the New Testament or Old Testament paints of what he's up to. So those are common errors. And uh, I don't presume that we don't have our own errors or that even after spending, you know, eight, nine weeks in this, that we're not still going to have errors and, and, and tendencies that are, that are sub-biblical or whatever, uh, but we just want to name that. That's a real and live dynamic when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, as individuals, if you're a believer, this is true of you. <laughs> I suppose it's true of you if you're not a believer as well, but as individuals and as a community together, we are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. You cannot read the New Testament without seeing that the Holy Spirit is the one driving things. That's where the power is in the church, the third person of the Trinity. Not to the exclusion of the Father and the Son, of course. 
we are dependent. And if, and if we are at all going to be the kind of community that God would have us be here at Door of Hope Northeast, it's only going to happen through the spirit of God's supernatural work in our midst. I just want to declare that outright. There's no way we can muscle our way into vibrancy as a church, into health, into anything. We can't do it. We are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God blowing the wind into our sails and carrying us forward. And if that's true, and I suggest it is, that's why we're going to take nine weeks to explore this amazing, the amazing and mind-blowing things that the Holy Spirit does for his people. And we're going to do it with two main goals. The first is that it would be an encouragement to us all with the reality that the Spirit is... If you're a believer in Jesus, the Spirit is already at work in you in in ways that are shocking when you really lay them out. And what we want to do is gain the eyes to see and the ability to name the ways that he is on the move in our midst that we don't even realize yet. Would sure be a shame to have the Spirit doing amazing and beautiful things amongst us and just have blinders, unable to see it, unable to give God the praise that he's due for what he is doing here already. But secondly, more than that, we also want this to function as an invitation for us all to experience more of the Spirit, to experience more of the Spirit in our lives, that we would boldly claim all that he has for us and leave nothing on the table. My prayer is that in, our indivi- in your individual life and in mine, as well as in our communal life together as Dwarf Hope Northeast, this summer would be, a mark- it would be marked as a turning point in how we live as a people indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what I've been praying for. That's what I'm going to continue to pray for. You should pray for that too. That we could identify, celebrate, and live into the amazing blessings, the amazing gifts that the Spirit has given us and that he wants to give us still. Amen? All right. Well, that's the goal. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask him to do that work. Well, God, we, um, we again just want to acknowledge our dependence. And I, I confess for myself, um, and, and if I could be so bold, confess on behalf of our whole church, all of us together, Lord, that it is so easy for us to carry on thinking we have what it takes to do the things that you've called us to do when you don't promise that. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. And you delight, you delight in working through your people powerfully, mightily, Lord, and you have put your spirit into each and every one of your children to do just that. So we beg you, Lord, we beg you, Lord, that that today, over the next weeks, and then for the months and years to come after that, that you would make us more and more a people of the Spirit, Lord. That we we would recognize what you've already done, that we would pursue deeply what you have yet to do, that you promise us you want to do in our community by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we can't manufacture any of this. We, you know, I'm not foolish enough to think that just giving nine mediocre sermons about this is, is enough to, to do anything, Lord. But we just confess, this is just us gathering kindling, and we're praying for you to set it on fire, Lord. We're praying for you to ignite it. We're praying for you to make things different tomorrow than they were today.
Help us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, we're going to go a bunch of places uh, over, over the coming weeks, but today we just want to try to answer three basic questions. And we, and we can only do it briefly, of course. There's so much more than we could say about, that we could say about any of these questions. Um, but this is where we're going. This is where we're starting. The questions are this. One, who, who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? Second, um, what is he up to or what did he do? And third, what was promised about him? And then we'll, we'll conclude by, by, well, no spoilers. No spoilers there. We'll, we'll just conclude when we conclude. First, first, who is the Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Um, the Holy Spirit is God. Hope you believe that. Holy Spirit is God. The, the, the great creeds of the church all declare that. That is to, to believe Christianly is to believe in the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But that immediately raises questions, right? Okay. Spirit is God, but isn't Jesus God? And then, of course, isn't God the Father God? And, of course, the Christian answer is yes. The Bible speaks of God as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who somehow, mysteriously, incomprehensibly, exist as one God. Three persons in one God. And the Bible never uses the word trinity or tri-unity, three-unity, but this has become the, the crucially important way of describing this mysterious threeness and oneness the biblical God contains. Um, to, to see the Spirit and, and his relationship to the Trinity, there's, there's lots of places we could go, um, but, but one where we see God at work in the world as Trinity is at the baptism of Jesus. So I just want to put this up. This, this is uh, recorded in uh, each of the Gospels, but I just want to look at the one. We've already looked at this in the Gospel of Mark a few months ago. But it says this, Mark 1, 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. And when Jesus, so, so John, he, he submerges Jesus in this baptism of repentance where Jesus, not because he needed to repent, because he was, he was fulfilling the role of Israel here and identifying with Israel. He's baptized. He comes up out of the water. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And in this moment, in this moment we see three. We see Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in human flesh during his earthly ministry, fully divine, fully man. He's being baptized, he comes up and out, and then we see the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, hovering over him. And then, quite distinctly, we hear a voice, the word, of course, meant to assume is the booming voice of God the Father coming from heaven declaring his pleasure and his love over Jesus. Three, present in one scene, each with a distinct role to play in this moment. And it reminds us of another passage, another passage that we should look at side by side. Uh, next slide. 
Very first two, two sentences of the Bible. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I don't want to presume... The, the doctrine of the, of the Trinity proceeds from less clear to more clear as you move throughout redemptive history. So as you move from Genesis to Revelation, it, it begins to snap into focus. But even here, first page of the Bible, we see God creating and then God's spirit there hovering. It's that same image, hovering like a dove, hovering over the face of the waters. So there's God, but there's already this complexity within him. There's God and then there's his spirit. We're told later in the New Testament that, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, before he incarnated as a human, he was there too as the agent of creation, active in this scene. God is Trinity, three in one. And we don't, there is no good and simple way to describe this. It's the second you start talking about it, it feels like you're about to step into error somewhere. So we have to let it be mysterious in so many ways. But God is three, three persons, and there is one God. That is the affirmation of Scripture. What that means is that each person of the Trinity is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Theologian John Frame writes that the general distinction between the three persons in, in the works of creation and redemption is that the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. That's a helpful way to think about it. But, okay, that's complicated and, and all that. This is not just... Um, what I want to say is that this is not just some theologically abstract truth. It's important. If this is what the Bible declares, I claim that it is, then we need to affirm it. We need to work, try our best to understand it, of course. But this is not just data that we need to get correct. Um, some of you were in the churchwide book club we did uh, a year ago, something like that, on Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. If you haven't read that, wholeheartedly recommend it. We have copies over there at the bookstore. Um, but Reeves just does a beautiful job of pointing out um, and, and, and drawing on the writings of people all across church history that, that, that this is not just boring, abstract truth. It's a beautiful, hope-giving truth because it means that the, the God that we serve fundamentally is a God of love. Jesus declares, like, before the creation of the world, the Father loved the Son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, these three persons that make up this one God, however in fact it works, however in fact it works, they exist, have existed as an eternal relationship of love. That means before anything was created or anyone was created, it was love. Okay, why does that matter? What that means is that we don't have to fear that God's love his loving character is contingent on any other thing other than just who he is in and of himself. That means he's not going to change. He's not going to suddenly become unloving. He's not suddenly going to abandon his promises. He has always been a God of self-giving love in himself. That is amazing. That is a beautiful and amazing truth that we ought to, that ought to stir up worship in us. A lot more could be said about that, but I suppose this isn't a, a sermon about the Trinity. It's a sermon about the Spirit. 
what we have to say with the scriptures that the Spirit, who is the Spirit? The Spirit is God. And we should clarify also that means the Spirit is a person. Talk, theologians talk about God as three persons, not three forces. This whole, it's very easy to imagine the Holy Spirit as kind of an abstract force or like the force from Star Wars or something. You know, it's like it's a metaphysical force we can kind of tap into and use and wield or whatever. That is not how the Bible talks about him. It talks about him as a person with will. It talks about him with personal pronouns. It talks about him um, as God, as God, as divine in himself. So the Holy Spirit is person, not an impersonal force. So we'd say the Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. He, we could describe him this way, as the personal presence of God constantly at work in and through creation. Okay. In the crudest, quickest terms, that's who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God. But second, what has he been up to? And I want to look specifically through the Old Testament. You'll see why as we go forward. But specifically throughout the Old Testament, we see he does a lot of things. But I think we could kind of, we could put them under these three categories here. The Holy Spirit creates and enlivens and sustains. So we already read, we saw him at creation in Genesis 1. He was there hovering over the water somehow as the agent. God spoke, but then the Spirit is the one hovering over, carrying out this plan of God. We see uh, in Genesis, I'll just skip ahead to to Job 33, it says, the Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit is involved in creation, but also maintaining. It's, It's like his presence is always at work to maintain and to enliven and to, 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 to sustain all that he's made. All that he's made. Psalm 104.30 says, when you send your sp- forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. The spirit is where life is. He enlivens. He's there at initial creation, but he is always playing a role in maintaining. He is holding your life together right now, the Bible declares. Spirit also empowers And I love this in Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, that I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, carving wood, to work in every craft. The first time we see the Holy Spirit come upon someone for some kind of specific purpose in the Bible is that. It's when he comes upon this artist to help him create beautiful things involved in the creation of the tabernacle. So it's no surprise that if, if the Spirit is the one who creates and sustains, he also is the one who pours, is poured out to help people also become creative. In, our, in, in this small way, that's a way we mirror God. Are you an artist? Are you a creator in some way? Don't miss this. The Spirit of God is at work in you, in gifting you with those abilities. There is dignity in that. Spiritual significance. So we see that many things like that many times throughout the Old Testament. We also see Numbers eleven seventeen says, I'll come down and talk with you there. 
And I will take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. This is the spirit coming upon Israel's leaders to strengthen them for the tasks at hand. And then in 1 Samuel 16, these are just a few of countless examples. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, David in Samuel's service. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit of the Lord tormented him. The spirit rests upon different leaders in Israel to empower them for certain periods of time. So you see the spirit is taken It's taken from Saul, and it's given to David. And that's not to say that it could only ever be on one person at a time, but the picture we get here in the Old Testament is that the Spirit, his amazing power, it comes upon the people of God at different times for different purposes, and then it'll leave. It'll be on a person for a while, and then it goes off to someone else. Oh, we were on King Saul, but now it's on King David, so on and so forth. And then finally, a common thing we see is that the Spirit reveals, reveals truth. Second Chronicles 15, 1 and 2, the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. What we see there is the Spirit enabled prophets of God to prophesy, to speak the words of God. It was through the Spirit of God that the prophets became God's mouthpiece time and time again. We also see Nehemiah 9.20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. Um, He's referring, Nehemiah is referring back to Moses. He says that the Spirit of God is who enabled Moses to teach The same truths that we find in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. It was the Spirit of God who revealed to Moses and enabled him to bring these truths to his people. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. We'll pause there. So the Spirit of God, we could say he does other things as well, but I think these these qualify as three of the most significant kind of themes of what we see him up to in the Old Testament. He creates, but then he enlivens and sustains He empowers people, particular leaders for particular times at particular places. And then at some point, he stops empowering them. And then he's the revealer of truth. He's the revealer of truth. Okay. Third thing. What was promised about him? So as you read through the Old Testament... You see him, you see the Spirit of God at work in all kinds of different ways, but then as you, as you get into the prophets in particular, you start to see like this hope, like, like this, this longing for this day that's going to come where something new is going to happen with the Spirit. So what he's been up to is, is amazing, it's a privilege, it's, it's incredible, uh, but there's something better on the horizon. Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the Lord, this is him, him writing as the, as the servant figure, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn. What we see is that the Spirit of God, they were longing for this day, predicting this day when it was going to anoint, to come upon the Messiah, 
was going to mark the Messiah, was going to empower the Messiah one day. How do we know who Messiah is going to be? He's going to be one who is uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. Second, in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what we see here, what Ezekiel is saying, is that this is all tied in with the promises of this new covenant that God's going to make with his people, where the Holy Spirit is going to come inside his people. And it, it, it's going to be part of this thing of giving, giving people a new heart. It's, it, the image is like we're no longer dealing with, with uh, we're no longer trying to treat the symptom. We're dealing with the root cause here. Deep within the heart, a heart of stone is removed and a new one of soft, tender flesh is given. And the Spirit of God will be inside God's people and will actually enable him to once and for all finally live a life of faithfulness, faithful obedience to God. And then another thing. Last part of our our Bible blitz here. Joel 2. Prophet Joel says, and it It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This just kind of deepens what we saw in Ezekiel, but the idea is the spirit is going to be poured out on all of God's people. And this, what, what Joel is saying, like even on the male and female servants, like if you think there's any, any, any group, subgroup within the people of God that's not going to be given this spirit in this new way, forget it. This is for everyone, everyone without distinction. Everyone will receive the spirit poured out on them and it's going to result in amazing acts through everyone, not just a few, is what Joel says. Okay. Okay, there's our crash course. Obviously so much more that could be said about any of this than we have time for, but there you go. The spirit is God. He does these amazing things. But, but the picture you have as, as, you, as you approach the end of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is that, is that there's something drastically more that's going to come. The Spirit of God has been up to amazing things. But what's yet to come is absolutely incomparable with what's already happened. Now we return to the words of Jesus that Karen read for us in John 17. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. That's God the Father. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The disciples are very upset because they know Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh. Jesus, he's been with these disciples. He's been hanging out with them. They've become friends. They've become family they become co-workers. He's training them and entrusting them to carry on his ministry as he's about to leave. This is the night of his betrayal. So they're grieving because they know Jesus is leaving. But here's what Jesus says 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. You've heard this. It is to your advantage that I go away. Heard that? It is better that I go away. I know you're sad about me leaving, but I want you to know what's coming is better than me being here with you in the flesh. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. Helper. That's how he refers to the Holy Spirit here. The helper, the advocate, the friend will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will no longer, you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, again, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We often like to think, and I I suppose there's a, a sense in which this is true, man, like, if you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, I'm sure you've had the thought, what would it be like to have been there with him, to have seen him in the flesh, to have traveled with him, to have walked with him, to have gotten up and eaten breakfast, to have watched a sunset with him, to have seen him perform these incredible miracles like the ones we've been reading about in the Gospel of Mark, to hear him teach, to see him love, to see him confound the religious authorities of his day. Of course, It's right to desire that, to see that, to have been there. That would be amazing. But don't miss this. Jesus says, what you have now is better. Does it feel better? For me, I would say no. (laughs) Most often, I'm like, how could that possibly be true, Jesus? And yet, like with so many things, that Jesus declares, I have to trust that he's telling the truth. I have to trust that Jesus knows more than I do about the reality of things, and I have to submit to that and say alongside him, yes, okay, I'll bite. It is better, Jesus, that the Spirit has come. It is better that, that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God and that the Spirit has come to indwell his people. But how could this be true? How could it be true that this is actually better, like actually better, friends? That, that is what the rest of this series is about. That's where we're going. What we're going to argue starting next week is that the day that the prophets prophesied, this day that they were longing for, the day when everything would be different. That's the same day that Jesus is saying is coming, that's going to be better, and that it's come. It came on the day of Pentecost, and we live on this side of it, and we have all the blessings of it now, here, today. In 2022, even in Portland, Oregon, even in this little church, we're living in in this world. These blessings are for you. Blessings are for you.
our conviction must be, because it's what the Bible declares, that the Spirit of God is alive and he is in our midst, Door of Hope Northeast. And that he will do what he, not what you, not what I, not, what, not even what the elders, not what, not what we want him to do, but he is going to do what he wants to do in our community. And that we should open ourselves as faithfully as we possibly can to receive all that he has for us. We're going to talk about this. It says we can quench him, we can grieve him, we can hinder the work that he wants to do in us. May it not be so. but we trust that he is going to do what he wants to do in our community. No more, but God forbid any less than he wants to do here among us. Amen? The promise, these promises have been fulfilled. That's what Jesus is saying. For the next eight weeks, let's learn to live like it. Amen? That's what we're after. We start by praying and begging God to do that for us right now. Bow your heads with me.